Good morning. Welcome to Encounter Church. Uh, my name is Chris Causey. I'm the lead pastor here. And um, I'm so glad that you've joined us for the month of November. Um, one thing, I cannot believe that 2018 is almost over. Um, I don't know about you, but I, I want to feel like, did someone drug me and I just woke up four months later because I could have swore it was still 2016 and somehow we're in the midst of 2018. And so we have about 60 days left, uh, a little less than 60 days left before we turn the calendar and start a new year. And this is one of the times, this is kind of the block of year where as a staff team, we start to take a step back and to evaluate and to dream and to imagine and to look towards the future. And I'm incredibly excited where we are as a team and what we're envisioning uh, in the next two years here at Encounter Church. But we're also excited for you. Uh, we've worked through and kind of outlined the series for all of 2019, and it's going to be really good. Uh, for example, February is going to be called Relational Vampires, How to Deal with the People Who Suck the Life Out of You. And so, um, you know, there's just some really good stuff coming up. And uh, a lot of what's going to happen in 2019 is going to flow out of what we do at the end of 2018. And one of the things that I'm most excited about for us as a people is envisioning who we could become. And this is what this series, Be Rich, is about. It's about making an exchange. Um, this past week, we celebrated a couple different things. One, we celebrated the Red Sox win in the World Series, which is awesome, right? That's pathetic. Are you like Yankees fans? What's, what's going on here? The Red Sox won the World Series. There we go. That's awesome. And um, another thing that we got to celebrate, if you have small children, um, we call this the week of self-control because your kids um, go, you know, go into the world and bring back all of this candy, which is a really interesting thing. I'm like walking down the street this week with my daughter and I'm like, okay, sweetie, you need to understand this day is weird um, because if any other day of the year someone wore a mask, came up to my door and demanded food from me, I would not give them food, I will dial 911. But like, this is the one night of the year where you can dress up, wear a mask, and come to someone's house you don't know and demand something from them and not break the law. And so, you know, it's just that life lesson that's really important to think about. And, um, but one of the things that uh, we get when we came home, we poured it out, and we're like, what in the world? And there's all this candy. And one of the pieces of candy is uh, this lollipop. And uh, we didn't come to any of your houses, so this is safe. Um, but this is a pomegranate lollipop. I was like, what in the world? Who thought that was a good idea for a six-year-old or for a 37-year-old to lick, right? And, and so I was like, this is really weird. And then, you know, my, my favorite, the, the bubble gum that tastes really good for 5.7 seconds and then quickly becomes like um, rubber repair kit for your raft if it has a shotgun-sized hole on the side this thing for three seconds and then stick it on the side and you're set for at least three years, right? This stuff's ridiculous. I probably still have it inside of me right now from childhood. But this past week in New York City, there was this really incredible machine, almost magical, dare I say, that occurred. And it was um, in the middle of a park in New York City. There was a machine and this is a picture of it. It's a Reese's candy converter. So what you do is you would come up, you would put your really bad candy in it and what would pop out was this. Then you could come and you would put another piece of bad candy and it would pop out this. And I'm like, first of all, I'm like, where have you been my entire life? <laughs> and two, I'm really glad you haven't been there because it wouldn't work out for me. Husky wouldn't have been something I just was labeled in my early years. It would have continued trajectory forward. Like, this is incredible, right? 
And this series called Be Rich is about that, the, the same heart of that machine is that we really want to step in with you. And as a people, imagine in 2019, God doing that in our lives. That we would have an exchange. That we would be able to step in and what He would give us in return, what we would start to see in our lives in return, would be far grander and bigger than whatever got put in. It would be far sweeter and richer than even a Reese's peanut butter cup, if that's possible. And, and the series is called Be Rich because at the end of the day, I think most of us, if we're being honest, we wouldn't mind that. We'd like to be rich. And when I say be rich, I'm not talking about what's been on the headlines recently with some of the largest lottery earnings um, fallouts in human history with over $1 billion. I'm not talking about that kind of rich. Because ultimately, that kind of rich doesn't satisfy. I was reading a journal article um, that was published by MIT Press, and it was documenting the, the kind of typical consequences of someone winning the lottery. And did you know that one-third of individuals who win the lottery declare bankruptcy? After the lottery, there is a significant, scary, more-than-average subset population of people who end up dead after winning the lottery. Because all of these people show up out of nowhere and they start to, you remember me? I'm your second cousin, thrice removed from your aunt's sides, cousins, grandmother's dog keeper. I mean, it's just, it's crazy. And I'm not talking about that kind of rich. I'm talking about a deeper, richer rich. One that gives us the life that we deep down inside desire. A type of richness that's the focal point of the way uh, one of the most famous authors in the New Testament finishes up his letter. That Paul, who is one of the most famous Christians in Christian history, a guy who's responsible for a majority of the New Testament letters, because the New Testament is a collection of letters that are bound together. They were written less than 2,000 years ago. Paul, the most famous Christian missionary, teacher, preacher, is developing a few young guys who are going to take over when he dies. And one of those individuals is a young man named Timothy. And Paul writes a series of letters. We know there's at least two because in the New Testament we have First and Second Timothy. He writes at least two letters to Timothy directing Timothy on how to lead a church in the most wealthy and most powerful, one of the most wealthy and powerful cities in the ancient Roman Empire, which is the kind of the empire of the, the day when the Christian faith begins to grow and spread. And it's to this group of people that Timothy is leading, that Paul writes these instructions. One of the most wealthiest, one of the most powerful, influential cities in the Roman Empire. He writes this to Timothy. Timothy, command those who are rich in the present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to, be, to do good, to be rich in good deeds, to be generous and willing to share, and this way they will lay up treasures for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Paul writes this to Timothy because in this city, what's unique to this city that's not as common in other cities throughout the Roman Empire is a lot of wealth and influence. Ephesus, which is the city where Paul um, is sending this letter to, was a, a major commercial hub. Rivers inter intersected with the ocean, which was a natural uh, kind of networking hub for trading and for commerce. 
But on top of that, this was a tourist destination. The Temple of Diana, which was one of the seven wonders of the world. Pliny the Elder, who's an ancient Roman historian, if you're into ancient Roman historians, which I imagine is none of you. Um, but if you were, you would know that the, Pliny the Elder is the one who, who kind of coins the phrase, the seven wonders of the world. That's where that comes from, is a literature written 2,000 years ago. And Pliny the Elder, who goes around and travels and documents a lot of the early Roman history around this time period, comments of all the, the, the modern kind of marvels of the day, what we would call the ancient wonders, that the Temple of Diana was the most impressive of them all. It was about the size of a football field. So if you imagine inside of Gillette Stadium, the entire grass, everything is covered. There are 127 columns. It's the first marble freestanding building in the world in human history. 127 marble columns, 60 feet tall, each one of them, handcrafted and moved to this spot. The ground is shady, sifty, kind of shaky because of the earthquakes in the area. And so they literally landfill and balance all of these beams perfectly. Then they place a roof on top of it of marble. It's incredible. And so the world would come to see this incredible spot, which was a huge source of revenue stream. Also inside this town of Ephesus was an amphitheater that still exists today that could seat 24,000 people. It's just a little bit smaller than Fenway Park. I mean, so here's an ancient city, almost 2,000 years old, and it has the equivalent of a Gillette Stadium and a Fenway. It's a huge commercial hub, academic, I mean, trade. Like this place has cash constantly flowing in. And so these people dealt with a unique struggle in the ancient Roman world. They were wealthy. And Paul writes this to them to cast a new vision for life. What he says in verse 19, that is a life that is truly life. And that life that is truly life is generosity. It's bigger than money. It's a mindset that sees all of life in a different way. And he writes this, these two commands to them to paint a different picture, to paint a better picture. But he starts with the word command, which, believe it or not, is pretty rare in the New Testament. The New Testament is filled with commands, things that as Christians we're to live out and obey, but rarely ever is the word command present. This is really explicit. Command them, Timothy. I know you're young. I know it's intimidating to stand up in front of them. But command them. Tell them. Shape the way they see what life is really meant to be. That part of them that hungers for it. Now, I recognize, for, for let's just be real, right? Some of you, your hands just shifted to your wallet because you're in a church, and I said the word generosity. I recognize, for some of us, um, that... Hearing the word money or generosity inside of a church makes you uncomfortable because you've had horrible experiences. You were nickeled and dimed. You were, if you wanted prayer, you needed to put it in a box if you had any hope of God ever hearing it. And I recognize that for many of us, you've watched television, tele-evangelists, and there is some really bad marketing of individuals out there who have used people and their generosity to get wealthy. And I respect that. I understand the struggle. I understand the baggage. I, for many decades of my life, was not interested in Christianity. And one of the reasons was those type of people. I still get sick. 
when I watch those kind of people using the faith that I know does not say the things it says to fleece people out of their money. But what Paul is calling Timothy to paint a picture of isn't what you and I have experienced in the negative. It's something completely different. It's generosity. It's a whole different lifestyle. It's a whole different picture. A life that's rich, not just in what it gives, but in what it does and the impact that it has. And you and I were created for that. We were made for it. Even if you would not call yourself generous, you naturally respect people who are. Because something inside of us understands that generosity is something we should aspire to. It is something that's inspirational. And the reason it is, is because it's out of that being stamped in the image of God, being made in His image, that we're shaped this way. He's a generous God. We just sing songs about God's generosity and love. And it's His generosity who's been stamped on us that calls out generosity in us. And that for many of us, we hear the generosity and we think church and we naturally assume it's what God wants from us. God's trying to get something from me. When reality is, is that what we see in this passage and what modern research has documented with study after study is that generosity is not about what God wants from you. It's about what God wants for you and for me too. That generosity has a huge impact on our lives when we begin to live and to spend our time, our talents, our resources in a way that's generous. I came across a couple studies in the process of preparing for this message. One was a study that pointed to the benefits of generosity and that people who were generous were actually healthier. Their blood pressure was lower than the average. Their anxiety, stress levels were lower than the average. That people who were generous were healthier people. They were happier people. This happiness actually came from a Harvard Business School study, which was kind of an ironic place to find a study out, kind of outlining the fact that giving your money away can actually lead to happiness. Spending your time in generosity can lead to well-being and less stress in your life. And it doesn't just make you healthier or happier. What they also found is that generous people live longer. So it's not just the quality of the years of life and the impact. It was the quantity of the years that those people had too. That generosity really is something God wants for you. And it's something that modern science is just recognizing, which was not even present when Paul wrote to Timothy to, to command this to the people. Generosity does something inside of us because we were made in the image of a generous God. And just to finalize this point before I move on, picture the most generous person in your mind. Have you ever met a generous person who's bitter? Who walks around with kind of a chip on their shoulder? Have you ever met a generous person consumed about how to pay their next bill? Or their finances? And it's not because they have a lot of money. It's not because they have more time than you. It's because generosity does something on the inside of you. And this is why Paul is so direct when he calls Timothy to command it. Now, I recognize that for some of us, our maybe second instinct is to say, well, that's good for the rich people in the room, but I'm not rich. Paul is talking to the rich people. This is Ephesus. Yeah, and Ephesus is really similar to Boston, but just to give you a greater frame, um, 50%, the reason most of us don't feel rich is that most of us, 
we, we base our richness on the amount of margin we have in our lives. And most of us don't have margin. We also base on our richness by looking up the economic or time ladder. We're like, we always can point to someone who has more, who does more, who's got more abilities, who's got more time, who's got more talent, who has more resources, who have bigger businesses. Right? We, we look up and we just naturally categorize ourselves as poorer than them. But you don't categorize yourself by looking up, you look down. 50% of the world lives on less than $2 a day. $2 a day, 50% of the world. I have traveled to different countries around the world and been in third world countries, and I can tell you that is true. And when you walk into what they experience as life every day, you walk out with a different perspective. If you think you're poor, and then you walk into a hut, and there's no running water, there's no electricity, you're like, wait a second, maybe I need to reorient the way I think about this thing. If you make more than um, $55,000 a year household, you're wealthier than 50% of the wealthiest people in America. Uh, 50%, so the, America is the wealthiest nation on planet Earth, and if you make more than $55,000, you are wealthier than the most wealthy group of people on planet Earth. So what starts to happen is we realize that we all start to fall into that camp of wealth and richness. That none of us can self-select out of what Paul is pressing into here. And that for many of us, I believe that we want to be generous. We just don't know how. I think deep down inside, we all want to live a life that makes an impact, that outlives what we do here. But we just don't know how to do it. For many of us, we didn't have models, role models. We didn't have instruction. No one ever sat us down and said, hey, let me teach you how to be generous. That's just not in most parenting playbooks that you grow up with. Maybe you knew someone, but no one ever taught you how. And what Paul does in this passage is he begins to teach us how. He starts off, which is very interesting, in a command to be generous, in a, in a call to lead a people to be a generous people, the first thing that Paul does is he presses into how they think about wealth, how they think about generosity in general. And so to teach you how, I want to use this ladder as a visual. I'm going to call it a generosity ladder. We're all on it at some point from down here with no sense of generosity practices in our life to up here being the very ex like existential, like, like a prime perfect example of someone who is generous. And the first thing that Paul does is that he unpacks for them a new way of seeing life. He says, command those who are rich not to be arrogant, not to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God. Now, what's interesting is that if, when you study the, the kind of the history of Ephesus, you'll know at, in Ephesus at the time, there are two primary uh, thought kind of patterns and ways of thinking about generosity and about money specifically, which is what he presses into. The first is that money is evil and it's bad. This is a call to this assess, uh, like an asceticism, a denying of self. It would be the ancient equivalent of HGTV, small house living television show, right? It's like, we don't have any excess in our life. It's all evil. We've reduced everything down. And so this is that ancient equivalent of that. And that this idea that money is evil was born in a kind of a, a religious belief that was present in Ephesus at the time that's not so much present here today. But then there was this other ditch on the other side 
um, that Paul presses into. The first one, he attacks by saying the phrase, it was given to us for our enjoyment. Because he's like, look, money's not evil. It's given for us to enjoy. But then he swings over to this side and he talks to this group of people in this ditch and he says that for not to put your hope or your arrogance in wealth. He's like, the danger over here is that for many of us, our sense of security is about as strong and as sure as the signature that we can write on a check or on a credit card slip. We equate our security to the power of our signature because we are hope, our status, our kind of confidence is in our wealth. And that's the other ditch. And he's like, look, you need to recognize that that's uncertain, that's unstable. There are a lot of people pre-2008, 2007, who were confident and sure. And then, in an instant, that was exposed for what it is. And he says, look, there's two ditches and you have to be aware of them. They're both wrong. They're both bad. Money was given for us to enjoy. It was not given for it to be evil. It's not a place of source and security. He's like, look, money is a nice feature to have in our life, but it makes a horrible foundation for life. And so what does he do? He, he changes their perspective. He says, God gives all things. That the right way of thinking is that God owns everything, God gives everything, and that everything we have came from Him. The breath in our lungs, the, ta the talents, the abilities, our IQ, our physical stature, everything about you that you like, you got from Him. None of us set it in our calendar to be born. None of us booked our arrival on planet Earth. None of us determined the abilities that we would be given or the hair or lack of hair that we have. None of us said any of that. God gave it all. He set us up. And that perspective shift of Him owning everything doesn't mean like, well, there's a little bit of time that's God's time. There's a little bit of money that's God's money. There's a little bit of abilities that's God's stuff. And then there's mine. It's, you know, all of it's His. And if you and I are going to start to move towards a life of generosity in our time, with use of our talents and our abilities and our gifts and with our, and with our financial resources, then to move up the ladder, it begins with us making a perspective shift and seeing ourselves through the lens, avoiding those two ditches and seeing ourselves through the eyes of heaven, of a God who gives generously all things, who gives us those things so that we can enjoy and so that we can leverage them to make a difference in the world. But this just changes the way we think. It doesn't start to impact our life yet. What has to happen is we have to move to the next stage, the next set and the journey. And the next one is something that's almost simple, almost defensively simple, but I know this. It's something we all struggle with. That if we have a perspective change, that we have to follow that up with a plan. The reason I know that this is something we all struggle with is that 60% of Americans, the majority of Americans, live on or at or above their income. So the average American is spending 100 to 110% of their yearly income on life. That does not mathematically add up in the long run, does it? And it's because many of us, we don't have a plan. The perspective does help because when you start to see the lens and you start to see life, then it gives you a little bit of a buffer to, to stop doing what Dave Ramsey says, where he says that we spend money we don't have on things we don't need to impress people we don't like. 
which is really true. And with that perspective shift, we still need a plan to start to move towards that. John Maxwell said it this way, and I thought this was so good. He says, if we don't tell our money where to go, we'll end up wondering where it went. If you don't tell your money where to go, you will find yourself wondering where it went. I don't care how much money you make. I don't care how much time you have. Whether it's in time or money, if you don't tell it where to go, you'll wonder where it went. And that's why a plan is essential. In the time world, we called that plan a calendar. In the world of talents and abilities, we call that life values and how we want to spend them. In the world of finances, we call that a budget. And I don't have time to press into all of that this morning, but one of the things that we've done, because we believe that we should be moving towards life of generosity because a better life, a life that's truly life, is found there. And so on November 18th, on a Sunday, we have a two-hour class that is centered on this idea right here. We want to spend two hours walking you through how do you develop a financial plan that tells your money where to go instead of you wondering where it went. Because we can't practically be generous people with any of our time, talents, or resources if we don't have a plan that starts to control and to direct it. But once we control and to direct it, we put ourselves in a position to actually start to make a difference. Because out of a plan, we can start to flow the next thing. Remember, Paul, in this passage, he's telling them to, to, to be generous, right? To, to, to do good, to be involved, to share. Like he's walking through all these things that need to be doing. Like here's the plan of the stuff you need to be doing. But he gives them this interesting statement. He makes this phrase, who are rich in the present world. And then he ends with the coming age. He he seeks to reorient out of that perspective and out of that plan a new way of seeing life. And it's this idea of prioritizing. And that we have to, once we have a place and a plan, once we have a handle on those things, then we're able to take a step back and say, okay, in light of who I want to be, in light of where I want to go, in light of who I want to become, what are the priorities out of that? How, do, how does that flow? How do I begin to move towards that? Which I love. Paul starts this whole thing with a command. He says, command those. Generosity. The most generous person you have in your mind or that you've ever known did not accidentally become generous. They intentionally became generous. Generosity is a decision you make. Generosity is a decision I make. It's not something that someone else makes for me. And that for those people who are moving up that generosity ladder, they begin to prioritize. They begin to choose. They begin to decide what's most important and how are they going to spend their life, their time, their abilities, and their resources to make a difference. This is actually woven into Christian doctrine. This prioritizing how we use our times, talents, and resources. This is why Paul puts this picture in place. He's like, look, life is more than what we have here. Life is bigger than what we have. It's more than what we own or what we can do or, or where we live. It's more than all of that. And one of the ways that it practically fleshes out financially for the Christian doctrine system is this kind of, for some people you probably grew up and you heard the word tithe, but it's this idea of setting aside, prioritizing percentage, like I'm designating for my life, with my time, with my resources, something set apart 
for God out of response of what He's given me in the 100%, I'm going to return a percentage of that back to be a part of what He's doing in the world. That frame, that priority is based in Christian doctrine. Now, let me just walk through this because this is, this is why I'm so incredible. Um, I like math. I like, I'm a nerd. I sit around thinking about things. And one of the things I remember early in my Christian faith, um, I was really kind of wrestling with this idea of tithe. Like, What's it about? Why do we do it? What's the impact of it? What is it supposed to look like? Because like some of you, I had been sickened by what I saw was people who were using people's generosity in the church to buy nicer clothes, to, to drive nicer cars, to fly in private jets, and to build bigger houses. And I, I grew up on less than $20,000 a year. And so I'm like, how does, how does man, that just doesn't jive with me. What about all the like, really poor people in the world and all the really brokenness in the world? And so one day I sat down and I said, okay, let's take every single American Christian, every person in America who claims to be a Christian, which is roughly estimated around 279 million people, and let's take those individuals and say, what if they tithe? What if they give a 10% of what they made to the church? Well, the average Christian, like the, the average gift of Christians in America is 2.5%, not 10%. Okay, but I'm like, okay, let's just say they tithe and they give 10%. What would that turn into? So I started doing the math and realized that if every Christian in America who claimed to be a Christian was giving 10%, which is that, then what would happen is there would be 526435725000 dollars being given every single year to the church. Now, granted, this isn't about building bigger buildings. This isn't about buying, having higher salaries. This is just current church as it is, current buildings, current people, like no new people showing up, no new staff members having to be added. So that, what that translates into is well over half a trillion dollars in excess funds in the course of a few months. And so then I was like, well, what would that do? So I started looking up all the major problems that we as humans have and the dollar amounts or the estimated dollar amounts tied to those. So is there a problem, if there's a problem that can be solved by money and infrastructure, what would that go? How far would that go every single year? And what I determined would, is if the church tithe, if every single person in America tithe to the church, then overnight what we would start to see happen with that Every single person on planet Earth would not go to bed tonight hungry because that would be enough money to provide all the basic nutritional needs for the 7 billion plus people on planet Earth. But then that's, not, that's about 50 billion, 60 billion. We still, we're still hovering right around half a trillion dollars. But well, So then, um, well, let's tackle the water sanitation problem because that's a significant issue around the world. Oh, well, we can solve that problem too. Let's talk about education and literacy, not just for boys, but for girls who are vastly undereducated worldwide. Well, we take care of that. Every single little boy and girl would have enough resources. There would be enough resources to build the schools and to fund education all the way through secondary for all 7 billion people on planet Earth. But then we have some money left over, so we keep going. Basic health care, including the senseless deaths that are preventable diseases that kill thousands upon thousands of little children all around the world every single day. All of that, fixed too. But every single imaginable human condition that can be solved with money alone, 
the church, not the federal government, not in institutions of governments, but the church could raise its hand and say, we got this. And it hit me that when people stand up and they get angry at the church and there's a frustration of like, if there was a good God, then why is all this bad stuff happening? And they have that legitimate reason to say, I don't believe in God because I don't see how a loving, good God could exist when all this bad stuff exists in the world. And it hit me that day doing the math that, oh my goodness, God was like, me too. Because I've given my people everything they need to solve every single problem that can be solved in human condition. The reason that the world is going to bed hungry tonight and thirsty and dying of sickness is not because there's not a good God. It's because that good God has given resources to people who are not using it for good. The problem is not Him. It's me. And it's us. And that people constantly stand up and voice that problem. And what it really is, is a condemnation on the church, not the God who gave the resources to the church. We have been stingy, and we have helped. And that for me was a wake-up moment. That was for me a moment to realize, oh my goodness, the church is meant to do more. The church can be more. And I fell in love with the church. And I've been ushered into this place at this church, at Encounter Church. It takes, on average, because I think this is helpful to understand, per person, it takes about $1,500 to $1,800 a year per person to do ministry here, okay? So you kind of do that math. Every single person who walks through the doors of Encounter Church this year, each one of them will, will take about $1,500 to $1,800 to do ministry. Coffee, rent, utilities, the lights, the, the air conditioning that I appreciate when I'm on the stage and I'm sweating, the um, goldfish for the little children, the orange t-shirts so that we maintain security and instantly recognize someone who's not supposed to be in our kids' areas. Like, you start kind of doing the math, about $1,500 to $1,800 to do all of that. But we're not just a church focused on us. We're a church that has a heart for the neighborhood and the nations. And so we intentionally are cooperating and participate with other churches who give out of what people give to a collective pot to make a difference. So above and beyond what it takes to do ministry here, we do things in our community. We do things like an egg drop. Where we do that to create a positive memory and positive association around Easter. We do community events. We give money in benevolence. We help to, to people who, need, who have rent problems, who can't pay for groceries this month. We give them those resources to cover that gap. You don't see that. We don't walk up on stage and say, hey, let me tell you about this person. Will you walk up here today? We want to talk about your financial needs. But we do that. And that on top of that, we then send money outside of this church, outside of this community. Just one example is that we partner with an agency, a cooperative group of churches have built this organization called Sin Relief. And that we cooperate together and through all the shared generosity, we are able to do extraordinary things. Sin Relief is the third largest relief organization in America. When the Red Cross shows up and they serve food, the reason they're able to serve food is because you and we collectively as a group of churches are the ones who built, provided, and resourced the mobile kitchens that feed those people. This year, those mobile kitchens have fed 3 million people in the wake of natural disasters here and beyond. Puerto Rico, 
And just in Puerto Rico alone, we've been able to send and ship mobile kitchens. So a place when the federal government could not get water and food to them, we were shipping in mobile kitchens to feed and to clothe and to engage tens of thousands of people every single day. In the aftermath in North Carolina and South Carolina, we, we've fed, in, I think, 1.1 million people. We've done flood cleanup. We've washed over 30,000 laundry loads in our mobile laundry facilities that Sin Relief provides. We have multiple ministry centers that come out of this cooperation that are scattered around America as diverse from New York City, inner city ministries, to a ministry city a minister center in Appalachia, which is one of the poorest, most under-resourced areas in our nation, a place that none of us would ever go. We have an ability to make a difference there. In a place where to live there means you have a, a, a more than 55% greater chance of dying of a drug overdose. Extreme poverty, people who don't have running water or light still exist in America in this region. And we have a ministry center that we... We help to support there. New Orleans this summer, we have a ministry center there because I-10 is one of the major, the FBI identified Interstate 10 as one of the primary trafficking interstates in the nation. And we have a ministry center in New Orleans this past summer. We had two different girls who were rescued out of human trafficking who have been now reunited with their families that they had been torn apart from. There are kids all around this nation who go home with backpacks full of food, who are able to, to be clothed, places and spaces we didn't, you didn't even know existed because we cooperate. And that when we talk about tithing, when we talk about the impact that we could have, this isn't about, like, this is only, quite honestly, at like the 2.5 isn't just a national average, it's an average here too. And that... When I talk about that 10%, the impact, if we started to step beyond what we currently give, it's not I get a bigger salary, it's not we get a bigger building, it's we do more in our community. We do more of what I've just said to you. We're able to engage and to, to continue to develop and create environments for kids here, there, and everywhere. We can do more. That's why I'm passionate about this. Is because I go to bed at night envisioning that and recognizing I am part of one of the most powerful forces on planet Earth, something God Himself created to be a force for good here in our neighborhood and into the nations. And, and you didn't ask this, but let me be very clear to you because I think it's helpful to know my salary is not a portion of what gets given on Sunday. That's not where my salary comes from. My salary gets set by a group, a board of outside pastors who I have no influence and sway over, who collectively determine my salary and the salary of Jason Hodges, our executive pastor. So if tomorrow you triple, you step it up to the 10-time level that we're talking about, my salary does not change. I keep driving my 2003 Buick LeSabre. I keep getting waved at by all the sweet ladies in the Dedham-Westwood area. I'm going to still walk up with my Target clothes. Right? Like, the reality is, is that this isn't about me. This isn't about this church having more money. This is about us being a part of the mission and the movement of God to be a force for good in our neighborhood and into the nations. Because there are people who are going to bed tonight hungry and dying of diseases that I believe God has put in our hands resources to cooperate collectively to make a difference and impact their lives.
That that's who we can become. That's who we could be. And that's why generosity flows out. And I'm also passionate about generosity because I'm on this stage today because of someone who went beyond this level. Someone who didn't just prioritize. It was an individual who was one of the best eye surgeons in the entire nation who happened to be working with college students when I was going through that college ministry and then into the grad school area. And he, he just would ask me to go to lunch periodically. And then he would notice that I had an ability to explain things and talk about the Bible that was simple and clear. And he's like, I think there's something unique about you. And then all of a sudden, one day out of nowhere, I get offered a job at a church. I didn't grow up like what our kids are growing up here having. And they're like, we want you to help start a student ministry. I didn't go to student ministry. I was like, what's a student ministry? They're like, we don't know, but we think maybe you're supposed to be in ministry. So figure it out. And what I didn't know at the time was that his passion extended beyond just prioritizing in a 10% kind of way. His dream, as I got to know him and as he became a father figure to me, was to die living on 10% of what he made and giving away 90% of what he had. When he was 55 years old, he passed away from cancer. And I was in the room with him when he took his last breath. And as he was dying, literally, I was just telling him all the things that I had been doing that year and all that God was doing in my life and through my life. And I was just like, I just want you to know I'm so grateful for you, Rick. Your passion, your sacrifice, you, you started all of this. I would have never raised my hand to that church and said, hey, sign me up for ministry. But you did. You pulled me in. Your passion, your willingness to do that made a difference. He went above and beyond. He is the very picture when I imagine generosity in my head. We were poor. He, he was like, hey, I'm your father. I know you didn't grow up with one. I'm, you're my son. You're my adopted spiritual son. I want to host your rehearsal dinner. I want to give you a wedding gift, which is LASIK. Because he was an eye surgeon. And he literally gave me LASIK eye surgery. He changed the way I saw my entire life. And it wasn't just because he reshaped the shape of my eyeballs. He gave me a new vision. And when he passed away, as tragic and as heartbroken as it was at age 55, what was incredible was even then, he was giving away over 70% of what he was making. He still lived in a really nice house. In fact, the most beautiful home around this lake in the region. He still had really nice things. In fact, there was an Audi that had been created in Europe that was not even sold in America yet that he had. He still enjoyed life. But his passion went beyond just prioritizing and he had a vision for life and how God could use him to make a difference. And he didn't just give money, he gave time. He wanted to mentor me and teach me what it looked like to be a father and a husband and a pastor. He's like, look, I start, I start surgery at 7.30, but could you meet me at a restaurant at 6 a.m. on Wednesday morning so we could spend time together? Because that's all I have right now. And we would do that every single week. Literally, I'm not exaggerating when I say he's the best eye surgeon in the world. China, during his kind of peak moment before cancer hit in, China flew him over to teach their leading eye doctors how to perform the surgery for cataracts that he invented. That changed the whole cataract surgery industry. And he modeled for me what passion looked like and what generosity looked like. And he gave me a picture 
that I'm on this stage because someone like you saw something inside of someone like me and didn't just have a perspective or a plan or a priority, but had a passion to spend their life in making a difference and making an impact and to have an echo that spreads throughout the entire world. And that this passion invested in me continues to ripple through. And every single Sunday, you get the payout of his passion. Because I would not be here today were it not for him. Now, I recognize for some of us that you're looking at this ladder and you are down here. Because all of us are somewhere on this ladder. You're, you're looking down here and you, you think and you see this top of the ladder and it is overwhelming. It is terrifying for you. And you're like, I can't imagine how I could ever get there. You probably feel a little bit like Alex Hanlon did on June 3rd, 2017, when he stood at the base of El Capitan, a 3,200-foot granite slab in Yosemite. He was getting ready to embark on what's called the free rider route, a route that is so incredibly dangerous that it's estimated that it should take four days to climb with ropes. It's so rarely climbed that when someone did it with ropes last year, it made news. And Alex Holland was there because he was going to do it without a rope. He was going to do it what's called freehand. Freehand means that you dangle like that with just your fingertips. There are parts of the free rider climb where he snakes his way up and the only ledge he has to hold on to is about the width of a pencil. There are other points in the climb where the only way you make it up parts of the rock face is there is a crack just wide enough for a part of the human body to slide into, and you literally wiggle your way up 500 feet. And this is him roughly around 2,200 feet as he's working his way up El Capitan. And what should have taken four days with a rope took him less than four hours with his bare hands. And this moment right here was captured by National Geographic as he climbed above the ledge and stood on a rock about the size of a kid's bedroom. And I recognize for some of us, the idea of us taking steps towards generosity can feel that overwhelming. It can feel that terrifying. All the questions and fears flood our mind. But I believe that our journey towards generosity is exactly the same that Alex's journey was up against El Capitan. It's one inch and step at a time. Just one step at a time. And this is my challenge to you. The entire month we're talking about generosity. Not just financially, but with our lives as a whole. Of becoming people who are known for what we do for, not what we take from those who are around us in our lives. And I would encourage you, as we start this journey this month, in a month that is going to end with sales and all these consuming time restraints of things we've got to buy and stuff we've got to get, for us to take a step back at the beginning of this month and to say, God, before I'm obsessed with getting my cart full, I want to start taking steps towards being grateful and generous in my life. And so today, my encouragement for you is to take a step. Maybe this is where you are. For you just to do this. Show up February 18th to take that step. 
And maybe some of you have a plan, but you've never thought about generosity. You've never thought about how to use your resources and where to spend your, your, your time, your talents, and your financial resources. For you to take a step and to start to prioritize. And for you to imagine how God could use your financial resources. Imagine how God could use your times and abilities. We have world solutions sitting in this room right now. And it just begins with us taking a step. And for some of you, and I recognize this may be rare, but for some of you, is to become a Dr. Milne. And to take that step of becoming someone whose vision and vantage point for life is bigger, greater, bolder than maybe those people who are sitting around you right now. And that you would take this step and start to live out of that place of passion, out of that pursuit of being someone whose life is marked by what they give and by what they do, not what they take from those around them. And that in the end, that if we're willing to do this, that we can all start to take the steps to be rich. Let's pray.